Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Today, my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Kapu'u Wailani Lindsay. Now, she is the first Polynesian explorer and female fellow in the history of the National Geographic Society. If that isn't alone, here comes a few more fun things about her. She is the former Miss Hawaii, a cultural anthropologist, an award-winning filmmaker. She advocates for social, environmental, and cultural justice, and she has devoted her entire life to protecting the wisdom and knowledge of Native cultures. I can go on. I am so excited to have her. Dr. Elizabeth Kapu'u Wailani Lindsay is one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to, seriously. And what stands out to me is her consistent and constant and unwavering connection to her heart and to the collective wisdom. So without further ado, what a treat to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sharon, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. It touched me deeply. Well, you know, in talking to you and in reading all the things that you put out there, I, I am, I'm touched by your connection to who's inspired you along the way. And I'd love to just start there. You, you mentioned your elders. Can, can you speak a little bit about your elders? I'd be happy to. So I was raised on the North Shore of Oahu, which is a very rural community and a small community where I was born and raised. My parents were both educators. And so they put us in the care of these three old Hawaiian women, these elders in our small town. And they were very deliberate about the elders that they selected to raise us during the day. And what I love most is speaking about them in order to pay tribute to the extraordinary women that they were these were elders that knew the names of the winds and the rains and could chant to the elements of nature and speak so intimately and understood their place in the universe, which even now is incredibly inspiring to me. I mean, these were people who even now represent you know, some of the greatest environmentalists that I have ever known, when we talk about environmental justice and cultural justice, these women were powerful in everything that they did. For example, we would go to the ocean under very specific lunar cycles, and they knew which schools of fish would swim under different specific moons, and they would chant and call the fish towards shore. And we always only gathered what we needed and never more. And they would do the same thing when they planted, planting according to the lunar cycles. And now, many decades later, as I have traveled around the world as an anthropologist, I have studied other cultures that are very similar in nature. And I feel 
entirely blessed that I was raised by by three women who had these systems of ancestral knowledge in them. And was it, you know, you, you, the first thing that spoke to me is, you know, they spoke to the winds and the rains and the elements of nature. Did you as a young person already know to appreciate it? I didn't. I, I, there, I didn't have a frame of reference other than this. I just knew, and I believe that children, when we come into the world, these veils are so thin in us that we know truth as young people. And we haven't yet been acculturated or conditioned in any way. And so I, it felt true in the, in the fabric of my being. I knew that the winds and the rains were intimate to me. I knew that to speak to them felt normal to me. I just, because I didn't have another frame of reference, I didn't realize that other people weren't raised that way. So when we see films or narratives that speak to the intelligence of trees or nature and something something brings us closer to home and when i say that i mean closer to the home within ourselves and we awaken we feel moved deeply by it it is that element of intimacy that i have always seen as just being part of my life's the fabric of my life. I, I've never questioned it. And because at that age, because at the age of four, it just felt so inherently right. And, and so the flip side is, at what point did you, were you exposed to not that way of thinking? And did your body also tell you, hmm, that doesn't feel aligned, that doesn't feel truthful to me? Yes. I, you mentioned that, uh, I, I was Miss Hawaii, and I went back to the Miss America pageant, and that's a whole nother conversation for another time. But but that experience, I mean, just, just that environment, and, and I should briefly mention that it wasn't that I aspired to becoming Miss Hawaii or going to the Miss America pageant. My father was very ill, and it was the one way that my 21-year-old self felt that if I could just place in the state pageant that I could put myself into school and then work part-time to continue my college education. But it was a surprise. It was as much a surprise to me that I won as to anyone else. And um, going back to Atlantic City and competing in the Miss America pageant was a very foreign experience to me. You know, growing up, I, I... wasn't raised with a sense of of competition. I mean, everything we did within our family and our community was was collaborative. You know, when when the community went to fish at Hukilau Bay on Saturdays, we gathered fish and everyone shared the catch. And so, you know, this was simply the way I was raised. And it actually is somewhat charming that I didn't do well at all in the Miss America pageant, but I was Miss congeniality because I loved the young women that I was with. So yeah, there's probably a, a part of my nature that's that's just never really been incredibly competitive about anything. I definitely am charmed by that part. I, I get what you say that it's it's charming with that. Um, what I, you know, when you you and I spoke earlier about this and I I remember as you're telling me the story, I 
I do feel like when we are thrown into those you know situations where there's a lot of external validation, truth can sometimes become a little more elusive. And I am so struck by your ability to stay connected to what you knew was true, even in the midst of all that kind of external validation and egoic uh, sugar-like experience. Are you able to pinpoint something, some tell, some indicator where you know, "Mm, I'm off path. How do I stay back? How do I get back to my course, the course of truth? Yes. And, you know, I think... I think when we're when we're experiencing our individuation, you know, for me it was around the age of 21 when all of a sudden I I became, you know, Miss Hawaii and then and then started traveling a great deal. The world felt very large to me and in many ways unfamiliar. It was a landscape that I didn't know. And for a brief time, I judged myself harshly thinking that because I was a country girl and had no social or economic advantage, that there was something wrong with me. And judged myself harshly, which which for me was the greatest travesty. Because these many years later, I'm almost 65, I look back and I realize that that was my great strength, was that I was deeply rooted in the land. I was born in a very humble hospital surrounded by sugarcane fields. And I and my hair blew wild and free in the wind. And I was a barefooted kid. And those things kept me grounded to the earth. And now as an anthropologist, I know that years from now, I will be sleeping on the ground under a blanket of stars with long white hair because that's part of what feels innately right in me. That process going from this thing you judged yourself so harshly for and then realizing, oh, wait, this is what makes me who I am. This is what makes me deeply rooted in the land. This is what's important to me. This is what I'm going to devote my my life to. How did you go from a place of judging yourself to a place of owning and loving that part of yourself? Wow, that's such a beautiful question, Sharon. I'll, I'll answer it in two parts. During that, that year as Miss Hawaii, primarily while they were preparing me, and I mean chaperones were preparing me for the Miss America competition, they were dressing me and cutting my hair, and, and there was never a conferring you know, how do you feel about this? They just did what they believed was what they had to do in order to, I mean, it was almost like an Eliza Doolittle moment where they took this, you know, this very raw and very unsophisticated young woman and tried to do something with it. And I remember at the time, I gave myself over to that process. It never felt right. And that was a pivotal experience for me. I think the gift of that year as Miss Hawaii actually taught me to trust my instincts. And it's not that I I came back quickly. I didn't. It's that it took me on a journey that finally I returned home to my heart that said, this feels wrong. And I have given my authority over to other people, and I have made their opinions of me more important than my own. 
And once I was able to really look deeply at that landscape and explore my internal terrain and know that I was off course, only then was I able to course correct my life. And did this happen in a short period of time or was this in you reflecting on that experience years later? It probably took me a good 15 or 20 years to really start to trust my own sense of who I am. So I went from my 20s into my 40s wanting very much to fit in, wanting to find ways of making accommodations even at the cost of subjugating myself. And it takes however long it takes for each of us. And what I love to do now in my conversations with women is to listen deeply to their own journeys and to engage in these conversations because I think that we all wake up when we're ready to. Sometimes people don't because it's it's threatening for them not to fit in. But for me, it was it was a process that didn't happen immediately. And there were, you know, there were variations on that theme and um, degrees to which I would come home to myself, and then I'd lose parts of that again, and then I'd come back to my center, and then I'd I drift a bit. So it wasn't a linear process at all. Yeah. And as you know, from the work you do, is is anything a linear process? It, it hasn't been in my experience. I, I wish I could say otherwise, but, but it, it's not been for me. And so your, your work in the world, I mean, you as a human uh, are, are so, I'm so enchanted and um, charmed by who you are as a human. And these words that you use, you know, it was a journey. It was a return home to my heart. It so fits in perfect with the expression of what you've done on our earth in your career. What, what led you to that? What led you to become the first Polynesian explorer and female fellow in, uh, for National Geographic Society? Well, <laughs> the first answer to that is that I never knew there was such a thing as an explorer. And as a child, I didn't really even know what anthropology was. Uh, I, I certainly seen and grew up with National Geographic magazines. And what I knew is that when I saw photographs of cultures in their magazine, I imagined that these people also knew the names of the winds and the rains and encoded in their spirits was an intelligence that I wanted to know more deeply. I didn't know that that was anthropology. I just knew that I had a passionate curiosity about that. At the same time, at the age of seven, my elders predicted that there would come a time that the world would be in trouble. And what they told me is that it would take the wisdom from the far edges of the earth to return the world to balance. And they said, someday, if you choose to, if you choose to, because we always have choice, you will go far away to keep the voices of the elders alive. The beautiful part about their prophecy is that they said, you will travel far away and it will sometimes be a lonely road if you choose to do this. 
And as you travel, you will look into the eyes of seeming strangers and you will find your ohana, which is the Hawaiian word for family. And it will take all of you to return the world to balance. So it was very heartening to me that, and and as a child, I knew that this was true. I didn't know how I was going to travel the world because as I said, you know, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. So National Geographic was never on my radar. I thought that explorers were men and in from my you know very young perspective were white men that wore these pith helmets and put flags on top of ground and that felt so wrong to me. Of course after decades of having traveled and just quietly and humbly bear witness to the world and to people. I know that being an anthropologist and an explorer is very, very different. And for me, the greatest explorers that I have ever known were these three old Hawaiian women that raised me because the greatest exploration we will ever make, all of us, is not to travel geographically, but to turn our sight inward and to explore this vast, infinite landscape of spirit and really search deeply about what is true and holy and immense in us. Now that's, that's exploration. I see it also as a, I'm not sure how to say this. I'll use the word bridge for lack of better word, but, you know, living in our bodies, living in our society and simultaneously trying to stay connected to truth and to what is holy is a constant fine-tunement. At least it has been in my experience. How, how do you do that? That's, I, I'm just so moved by that because I know how hard that that is. Mm, well, you know, we live in a society that really applauds and prizes reason and logic, all of which I value as well. I simply know that there is an integration of wisdom and logic that when it's married to intuition and wisdom, then things really become quite powerful. And for me, having a a, a grounding in in my early years where these elders took me by the hand and they stood and said, where you stand is holy ground. This ocean is a temple. That tree where you stand is a temple. You make it holy by your commitment to stand in deep rootedness, connecting heaven and earth. So when we see media and narratives like Avatar, the reason that it struck such a chord is because there is something that goes much more deeply that reminds us that there's a greater purpose for our being here and traversing this, what we refer to as a lifetime. The fact that we live in modernity, we have a gift and opportunity to integrate these worlds of spirit and what we call reality of our perceptions and to be able to bring all of this together in such a way that we can create a heaven on earth. And I don't mean that in some, you know, in some very naive way, because I'm both a Western trained scientist and an indigenous woman. It's about bringing these aspects of our lives together in the most elegant, 
sophisticated manner that's highly intelligent. And so I, I don't use these notions loosely. And I watch more and more people doing it, you know, because we're all indigenous to somewhere. And it's our it's a memory. And, you know, what these elders and elders throughout the world continue to say is, we must remember who we are, who we truly are. Hawaiians have a wonderful word. It's one of my favorite. It's ea, E-A. And ea is the greatest sovereignty one can experience. And when I think about personifications of this ea, of this sovereignty, this personal sovereignty, I think about Nelson Mandela being in his cell and yet in his mind and in his spirit, he was a free man. And I apply that concept to our lives. When we harness our authority, when we take it back and stop looking outside ourselves for permission and the opinions of others to supersede our opinions of ourselves, then we harness and we reclaim our authority. And then we practice that sense of air, that sense of sovereignty. I, I use the word bridge, but I think the word you used is so much more accurate. Integration. Integration. Heaven on earth is an integrated thing. Western science with spirit is an integration. I want to know, again, in the earthly realm, do you ever feel fear? Here you are exploring uh, islands that nobody's ever been to, National Geographic has ever been to. Tell me about a moment where um, you've navigated some fear. Oh, I, I, have, I have felt fear a lot. I feel it quite a bit. And I'll share this one experience of an expedition that I led to a very remote island in Micronesia because it explains, you know, the process for me. I was leading an expedition as a woman with a nine-member crew, all men, because they were strong watermen and I needed them to be strong and I needed to rely on their abilities. We actually I had to negotiate with the Micronesian government even to get a cargo ship to get me to the island, to get our crew to the island. And once there, I mean, we had to we had to provision 5,000 pounds of gear, including all of our water and fuel, because the island had nothing. There are about 400 Sotawalis that live on this island that's the size of an average American shopping complex, half a mile wide by one mile long. And because the island had so little, we didn't want to strain what limited resources there were. And um, so, so we took you know, everything to the island. And then when we got there, of course, we shared everything we had with the islanders. And that meant that we ran short of water. And there, you know, the primary source of water on that island was rain, and it didn't rain for 13 and a half days. So you can just imagine the degree of strain and anxiety that I had leading a crew, asking these men to leave their families and their loved ones to come with me to an island that National Geographic still has never been to. And I, I, I wasn't sure that we would get all get back safely. So was there fear every single day, almost every hour of every day, I felt fear like I had never known it before. And in those moments, what we have to do is be intelligent so that the decisions that we make are the 
the most informed decisions that we can make because people's lives depend on it. And everything I did, I blessed the crew and blessed the island. I mean, all the lessons I was taught as a child with these elders, that everything becomes a holy and sacred process. And um, one quick story that I'd like to share with your audience was just before leaving on that expedition, I was in Washington and I boarded a metro and there was no one else in this section of the metro that I was on. But this, this woman came and sat right beside me when there were lots of seats available. And in the course of our conversation, she learned what it is I do. And she looked at me and she said, I will never travel to the parts of the world that you will see. Um, and she asked me if, if I was ever afraid. And I told her I'm afraid all the time. And she said, but I will be with you in spirit. And and her words continue to carry me because every expedition I make, there's some degree of uncertainty. There are no guarantees of safety. And I get scared before we launch. I know that I am responsible for the lives of others. And um, I know I have a great responsibility for the cultures that we are coming to to bear witness to to who they are and the traditions they carry and the wisdom they carry. And I and that is a holy journey to me. So I feel great responsibility for all of it. And yep, I'm I, I feel fear all the time and I keep on going. And you know what I heard once again? Integration. You said I make informed decisions. There's that Western rational reason. And I bless the crew and the land and the resources. This is holy and sacred. Once again, an expression of the integration. Thank you, Sharon. I like, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, an explorer, so I don't know if this is just common in the industry, but even this concept of, I don't want to strain the resources on this island. If I had that mentality every single day as I walk around in my Western life of what am I straining, what am I contributing, and how do I make sure I don't strain the resources of others or of our earth, there's something just even going into this of with that mentality that, uh, that moved me. And, you know, we could, we could unpack that a little further. Whenever I travel to any land before I actually step foot on the land, I quietly ask permission to be there it, because it's like entering someone's home. I would never enter someone's home without without being invited in, without permission. The elders, all of them without exception that I have visited, have always said, we are reading your heart before you ever arrive. We know, we know who you are and we know why you're here. And they have been incredibly generous to me in sharing their stories and their wisdom because just as my mentor, who was a famous wayfinder, did, they're reading us like weather conditions. My mentor, who was a wayfinder, said, the island is the canoe, the canoe, the island. And what he meant by that is when we are on a canoe, our resources are finite. And how any one of the crew members uses those resources affects the whole. The planet is our canoe. So when we talk about understanding how we use and steward those resources. We really understand the holistic nature of our of the way we behave because it affects the whole. So the planet, the canoe becomes the planet, the planet, the canoe, and we're all 
on this voyage together, whether you know we're looking at countries or communities or individuals. We're all, we all have a responsibility and stewardship to the whole. Wayfinder. Can you explain that to me? You said your mentor is a wayfinder. Yes. My mentor was a man by the name of Piasmao Piailuk, and he was, until his passing a few years back, was considered the greatest celestial navigator in the world until recently. And there are many, many things. Mao was Micronesian, which is why I led that expedition to his island because he was conducting an initiation ceremony for the next generation of navigators and wayfinders. And what they do is, in in Micronesia specifically, the grandmaster navigators like Mao was, they're also priests. So they call them Palu, where they're navigator priests, which is quite extraordinary because in many ways, from my perspective, they were they were brilliant indigenous scientists who were also priests, mystical sages, and they integrated both. And basically what they did in a nutshell is they had a heightened state of awareness and they synthesized seemingly unrelated patterns in nature in order to gain their bearings. Now that's the scientific part of what they did. The, the more mystical parts of what they did is that they would harness their mana or their life force and call islands to them. We could go on about that, but that basically encapsulates what these men and women can do. And it's really an extraordinary science and system of knowledge. I mean, I, I use these concepts and apply them to the way we navigate life, but I uh, always attribute and honor Mao because he was he was my mentor for 10 years, and I was very, very lucky to have studied with him. And again, this combination, you're this uh, scientist simultaneously being a priest. The overlap of the science and the, the mystic, I, I, I love that. You told me a story of what it might look like in the presence of, of a wayfinder. I, I, I can't remember the details. I got this visual, though, of this man laying down in the bottom of the canoe. Can, can you share with me what it might be like to be in the presence of a wayfinder in their act, doing their, their thing? Yes. So there was a there was time when Mao was on a canoe, and the canoes are double-hulled canoes. The, the hulls themselves are quite shallow, but they're like there's space enough for you to go and lay in the hull. And it's the most sensitive. It's considered the womb of the vessel. It's very, very sensitive. And so there were uh, several scientists on board the canoe. Mao went into the hull to go and lay down. And because these scientists didn't have any depth or background about non-instrument navigation, it simply appeared to them at first glance that this older man was going to rest by laying down. In fact, what he was doing was gathering empirical data because he was using his body as an instrument and being in a sensitive part of the vessel, he could feel the sequence and directional points of the waves. And that's just one example of how they gather data, which to me is just brilliant. 
Mm-hmm. Well, again, it's it's this, you know, you said in our Western modern world, we give so much value to reason and logic. And this was the using the body and the mystical as the instrument and then using reason and logic afterwards or integrated simultaneously, of course. Yes, exactly. And, and this is what I find throughout the world. I mean, then we go to India and we look at these, you know, ancient ethno, this ethno architecture where they created step wells or what they call step ponds in order to conserve water. And only now are organizations and companies and design innovative, beautiful innovation now is understanding that this elegantly addresses water scarcity. So this is what I refer to as our ethnomimicry. We talk a lot about biomimicry. But when we use the wisdom and knowledge systems of these cultures and we study them, we see that there are these time-honored, brilliant ways of building and innovating that actually are elegant solutions for our challenges today, water scarcity being one of them. And so like Mao, it's just, it's how do we integrate these systems of knowledge based on these cultures that have been doing this for centuries, if not for millennia. I mean, I think about the wayfinders because in 1500 AD, many European scientists still believed the world was flat. And yet for a thousand years before then, these mariners throughout Oceania were sailing fast distances without maps or instruments. It, it's really quite extraordinary. I find uh, this ethnomimicry that you, that you mentioned, it's so interesting because at the end, what are we doing? We're going back. We, you know, with all this modernity, with all the, all the quote-unquote forward movement, guess where all the wisdom lies? <laughs> where it originated. <laughs> You know, it's really true. And, and the, you know, the simple truth is that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. When people ask me, you know, how do I do this? It's like, go to stillness, listen deeply. There's an intelligence within and surrounding you and answers await. And, you know, you look at these celestial navigators, they would sit, they would sit on a very specific seat on the canoe and they understood they looked at the currents they looked at the slightest color of the underbelly of the clouds they would watch the schools of fish and they would gain their bearings that way we can do the same in many ways we when we become when we heightened our ability to be observers of our, the, our lives and really start to pay attention when we enter into into rooms and there are certain people that we feel nourished by and other people that we feel depleted by, pay attention. Because the intelligence within us is, is really informing us. And when we begin to trust that and build that muscle and really become much more masterful in how we take in this, these data points, how we're able to take in this information so rapidly and start to trust it and start to listen to it. And all of a sudden, we navigate life much more masterfully. I think about all of these cultures that have been doing it for so long. And, and I think, you know, let us just remember. And I'm, I'm impassioned about documenting the wisdom of cultures 
not simply because it's vanishing, which it is, and 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 that would be a travesty to forget, but also because what they have done really serves us in this modern society. We have so much to learn. There's so much available to us if we just start to remember the wisdom and and brilliance of these societies that have gone before us and our ancestors. And you've mentioned this word before, and and, um, it's the quiet, the still, that allows us to, to remember. To remember and to know. You know, because there is a knowing. It's like sometimes I watch people and they they ask their friends and they go to astrologists and they go to their therapists. I'm not I'm not criticizing or making judgment about any of it. All I'm saying is consider the possibility that there is a resource within you also and give it a fair and balanced respect. In Hoffman terminology, for those of you who are graduates, which you are as well, we would call that our spiritual self. But that's just semantics. It's, it's, it's that inner knowing, that inner wisdom. You did the process. I think you did it some, some time ago. Do you recall what it was that led you to come and take the process? I have always seen myself as a student wanting to learn and wanting to wanting to discover ways of becoming more masterful in my life. And a dear friend of mine introduced me to Hoffman. And it was, you know, at a point where I was living in the Bay Area, it just so happened that there was a a session coming up and I was available and not traveling. And I thought, let's do this. And it was quite profound. It's been over a dozen years since I was at Hoffman. But I do remember that it invited me into deep and sacred places that um, allowed me to explore, explore even more parts of my spiritual nature. Right after that, I left for India, and that was enormously transformative and accelerated a great deal of my practicing stillness and meditation. And for me, meditation is imperative. It's really not an option. It's a deep daily practice like breathing for me. I can't, I cannot go a day without it. Your practice, the whole thing, not just meditation, but I can tell you that being in your presence, I can feel, you, you know, there's, there's, there's ways that our body, our instrument gives us data to use, to use your terminology here. And I can feel in my body that I'm in the presence of someone who is deeply connected, and um, and it incur and it allows me to go deeper too. It's a it's a contagious thing. Thank you, and, and that is the truth. The greatest service we render humanity is to step in fully to all that we can be, and because because in so doing, we invite everybody to do the same and celebrate that. Celebrate that. And, you know, there was a, a story that you had touched on just before this interview. And and I'd like to I'd like to mention and share it with your audience. When I was on that small island in Micronesia that we talked about earlier, there was a day that I was racing. The only the only transportation on that island was an old wheelbarrow. And the film crew, the crew 
that that I traveled with was on one side of the island where where the island was experiencing a lot of erosion and sea level rise. And so they'd already gone ahead and were hauling gear. And I had this wheelbarrow that I was pushing with the remaining gear and going as quickly as I could. And toward me, there was a an older chief crossing this bumpy little path. And as he got to me, I mean, I was like this, you know, just pushing along. And and he stopped me and he said, Dr. Lindsay, why you go so fast? And I started to explain to him that the crew was waiting for me and I didn't want, I'm not comfortable with people waiting for me. And I mean, I was like a bat out of hell. And this man just, I mean, he was so dignified and serene. And he shook his head and almost under his breath, he whispered, you all have watches, but you have no time. And you know, Sharon, his words have stayed with me for all of these years. I mean, when I'm racing through my email and I'm pushing to get a project done and when we were traveling before COVID and I was racing to airports and through airports, this man's voice comes back to just slow me down. We all have watches, but we have no time. And, you know, when we start to just really become, let me say this, when I become more present in my life, everything, everything works out just fine. You know, it's just, it's just becoming more present again, just savoring life and knowing that it's the journey that is the great gift. And, um, and so I, I wanted I wanted to share that with your audience because it was one of those lessons that was quite life-changing. Yeah. When I was reading um, some of the things that you had written that you, you mentioned that story and whoo, that shook through my system when I, I, I could hear that. I could see everything you just said was literally the visual I got when I read it. And you all have watches and you never have time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, these cultures, there have been there have been people along the way whose faces and eyes stay with me, whose names I never knew, but whose faces stay with me. An equally profound experience I had was in India. And I was in the outskirts of Udaipur in a small village, and I was walking down this dusty road with a translator, and I saw this woman knelt down filling this pothole in the road with cow dung and she was wearing this beautiful sari and to me she looked like a queen and so I said innocently to my translator why would a woman dress like that to do this kind of work and as we got closer he asked her in Hindi he asked her the question and without hesitation this woman that was crouched filling this pothole with cow dung put her hand to her heart, looked up at the sky and said, in Hindi, I dress for the divine. And all of a sudden, that stopped me too. Because at the time I was living in Marin and, you know, I would run errands and, you know, be in workout clothes and, you know, never comb my hair and just racing through my day and going into the market. And I thought, 
like I don't even know when I've dressed for the divine. I, I, I don't know that. I don't know that experience. And it really just brought me back to my experience of living in the U.S. and thinking, when have I ever thought to clothe myself for the divine? And what a sacrament that is. And so these are just two examples of people whose paths I have crossed that have humbled me to my knees. Wow, what an amazing life you have led. What amazing courage you have had to answer the call that you got early on. Your elders were dialed in, obviously, and and their prediction became your life, your life's work. And and now here I find that I am on the receiving end of of your wisdom, and I feel humbled by you sharing, and hopefully other people will feel that as they listen. It's just such a um, reciprocal life we live if we choose to be that way. Thank you, Sharon. Your words truly touch me deeply, and I find them very humbling because it's really the only reason that I am here is to be a transmitter of their stories and their wisdom. And I feel honored and privileged to you know, be a vessel and be an instrument in that way and nothing more. And I thank you for, it's been such a joy to meet you. When you say, you know, I'm, I'm here to be the transmitter of their stories and their wisdom, I really sense that these are not just words. They are pure. They're authentic. I am in the presence of somebody who has truly devoted their life to this, and I can feel it. And again, I can't help but think uh, or feel, I should say, gratitude for you having answered the call that you were given. So thank you uh, both for on a high level for answering and taking that, that call that required you to leave the comfort of your home and leave the comfort of your land in service. And uh, thank you for, for answering this call to be uh, one of our guests and to be in our Hoffman family. And I feel blessed to have connected with you. And I know in my heart, this is not the last time. So I feel lucky to know that you are now in my life. Thank you, Sharon. I feel the same. My love to you and aloha to all of your audience. All right. And thank you, everybody, for being here with us. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.